Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. You write in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and we answer them. My name is William Bibiani. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold, and everybody calls me Whitney Seibold. Or right here, you often write in and call him Rockmeister McCool. That, I guess that's my letter's name. That's your letter's name. That's your nom de letters. We're, we are both uh, professional film critics, and but we're not just here to talk about film. Uh, this one, we're happy to do that, too. Happy to do that, too. In fact, we frequently do. But uh, yeah, in the letters episode, we address whatever you would like us to. So we'll answer your letters. We'll talk to you. We'll approach whatever topic we feel we're comfortable speaking about. And uh, we don't like to uh, waste a lot of time on this podcast. We like to just jump into the letters. But I'd like to address a couple elephants in the room real, real fast. Um, obviously, this podcast wasn't on the air last week. We were trying to take a break uh, from most of our regular programming so that we could all focus on Black Lives Matter. Um, we still want people to focus on Black Lives Matter. Mm. We still want people to get out there, uh, you know, protest. If you can't protest, donate. If you can't donate, at least sign some petitions. Mm. Um, at the ver- and at the very least, uh, read, educate. Yeah, uh, uh, boost the signal. Yeah. You know, make sure you share other people's tweets who are doing something uh, important. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's where we stand on it. And, uh, yeah, we, we need to get back to the show, but, uh, we have not forgotten and we will continue doing what we can. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second elephant in the room is if anyone follows me on Twitter at William Bibiani, uh, I posted a tweet earlier. Well, today, uh, the episode probably won't go live until tomorrow, but, um, that, uh, although you are still welcome to follow me on Twitter, uh, I'm taking a bit of a break from Twitter for... I honestly don't know how long. It might be a week. It might be more. Um, but uh, I have not tried to hide the fact that I have mental health issues. Mm. Uh, I have a lot of problems with depression and anxiety and plenty of other things as well. Uh, and, um, well, right now, social media and a lot of things that have been going on in the world uh, have exacerbated a lot of those. Um, so I need to... I've been told, anyway, that I need to focus on self-care. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to be looking at social media uh, for a while. I need to focus on, uh, you know, my family and the things that are around me a little bit more. Um, but I will still be focusing on these podcasts. These podcasts give me purpose, and these podcasts bring me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. So the podcasts, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not abandoning Whitney. Um, the Everything else is status quo, but you won't see me tweeting for mm-hmm. a while. Uh, but I do want to say a very special thank you to everybody who responded to that tweet and said they wish me well. That meant a lot to me. That was very, very kind. Uh, but in any case, I just wanted to address that in case anyone was wondering, oh, God, is he not going to be doing the podcast mm-hmm. or is he in a really, really bad spot? Uh, I'm better, but it was kind of bad for a bit. So uh, I would like to move on with the work. I would like to uh, continue to have fun with you, uh, everybody listening, especially everybody who wrote in, um, and of course my good friend Whitney. So uh, l- let's just get started. Let's get started. Um, I- I'm waiting for all of the studies to come out about sort of the effects, not just social media, mm-hmm. but specifically Twitter has on yeah. mental health. And, it's, and, it's just and a how cacophony it's, of it's bad really news co- yeah, all it's, the time. Yeah. It, it's not just a cacophony of bad news, but it's just people yammering at each other until the... Uh, we were just talking about this, how arguments on Twitter start around a point, mm. and like within 
five to six tweets just turn into semantics. Listen, this like it's it's such just such a a difficult place to be. A lot of days. a lot of amazing things happen on mm. social media. A lot of amazing movements can get started. A lot of information can be uh, gleaned, and you can learn a lot about uh, people around you and people around the whole world. Mm. I'm not anti-social media, but I do believe that it is important to take a break from it now and then because honestly, even at the best of times, it's just too much stimulus. Yeah, we're mm. we're not meant to be constantly deluged with that many different thoughts and agonies all at once. It's break yourself from that endorphin rush you get when you see a like on one of your tweets. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit Uh, of a scanner box. So, um, anyway, um, anyway, if anyone else ever needs to do that, I thoroughly support you. It's perfectly reasonable. Um, and I need to do it right now and I don't know how long it'll be. Maybe a while, maybe a short bit. I haven't decided yet, but Right now, taking a step back has been very, very helpful. You, you for take me. as little or as long as you need to. I appreciate man. that. Thank you. So, uh, anyway, with all of that said, I don't want to take up any more of your time because this is your podcast. Whitney, let's read a letter. Here's a letter from Sean. Hi, Sean. Hi, Sean. Um, after listening to your commentary on the Shout Blu ray release of Very Bad Things, Ooh. I had to reach out and drop you a line. Ah, oh, we, you. Uh, yes, uh, William and I did a commentary track for the 1998 film Very Bad Things for the Shot Factory. Yeah, it's something I'd always wanted. This is actually on my bucket list item. I really, really <laughs> wanted to do an official Blu ray or DVD commentary track for mm-hmm. a really actually released on DVD uh, movie. And we got to do two. Mm-hmm. We did uh, Very Bad Things, which is a very dark, very bleak. Incredibly uh, cynical movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, comedy from uh, director Peter Berg. And we also did one for Brewster's Millions starring Richard Pryor, which is a, a very, very... Which I think it was like the 30th film by that name. It turns out there's like a bunch of Brewster's Millions That's movies. That's true. Uh, but yeah, I was very, very happy to do both of those. Mm. And um, anyway, thank you for noticing. And let's see what the letter's about. Anyway, um, first of all, just let me say a couple things. For one, Very Bad Things has always been one of my favorites. Oh, okay. Uh, like you guys uh, stated in your commentary, I vividly remember seeing Very Bad Things in theaters when I was about 16. And the film had the desired effect. I left the theater completely shell-shocked. It was unlike anything I had ever seen. It left me brutalized. At the same time, I found me and my friend laughing hysterically at it. Also, I realized this, and this sounds bizarre to admit, but these were characters who actually cared about and liked to an extent. Uh, If you haven't seen Very Bad Things, it's, um, it's about like four of the worst guys you've ever met. These Mm. four dudes go off to a bachelor party in Las Vegas where uh, they hire a stripper and then accidentally kill her and then bury her body in the desert along with a security guard that they also murdered. Yeah. And try to cover her up. In order to keep the secret. And then 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 everything snowballs and it turns out everybody's just this horrendous human being and they're pushed Mm -hmm. to all these extremes. And it's, paced like a comedy but there's not anything really sort of straightforward funny about it very bad things is the Mm. movie that made me promise myself that if i or anyone i knew ever accidentally killed someone Mm. we just turn ourselves in right yeah it's not fucking (laughs) worth it it's not Mm. fucking worth it hopefully Mm. the cops would be like very bad things totally get it thank Mm. you so much for saving us the time (laughs) anyway um so yeah that, that you like these characters when they're like deliberately and massively unlikable is is a a lot, I, of, I, a lot of empathy. In yeah, there's the, let, let's see what's going on here. Uh, second, I'm uh, I'm so glad that uh, boutique companies like the Shout Factory exist. The argument is always expressed that physical media is dead and no one buys discs anymore. While this is true to an extent, uh, it's wonderful seeing companies like Shout put out editions like these for collectors, complete with all of the bells and whistles that fans like us, those who still collect physical media, truly want and appreciate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is where physical media is now. It's all very carefully curated. Yeah, it's an, it's becoming a bit more of a niche market. It's not the way m- most people consume all of their media. 
Um, how it is, however, becoming the sort of thing where if you like a movie, this is where you get the version you keep forever. Yeah, yeah. And so being able to do a commentary track for it, or uh, the various people who produce like making up features and things like that, what they're doing is basically mm. historical archiving, and mm. it's an honor to be a part of that. I love it when a film goes straight to the Criterion Collection. It's oh, like that yeah. That one came out. Yeah, that's a Criterion film. Yeah. That happened with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's oh, like, yeah. yeah. Well deserved. Yeah. Portrait like, of a Lady on Fire. Should we do a. Bl- uh, just straight to the Criterion Yeah, collection. we're not even going to pretend it's, this it's belongs like the, anywhere else. Oh, it, it's the romance of the age. Let's just, just be Let's, honest here. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree with that. Good. Uh, which leads me to questions for, uh, out of pure curiosity. Sure. Uh, for one, how did you guys get lined up for lending your voice and wisdom to this classic movie? Also, do you have any other commentaries lined up for other potential releases, Shout or otherwise? Seeing how Shout seems to have deals with universal titles, there are quite a few that I'm dying to see, but if dark comedy is what you want, might I suggest Nurse Betty? Uh, <laughs> thanks, guys. Looking forward to hearing uh, my letter uh, and listening to your response. Oh, and William, in response hmm. to your question for Whitney in the commentary, let me provide my thoughts. When Boyd has tears in his eyes and he looks over or Adam, the Daniel Stern character, as he lays in his hospital bed, I honestly think that Boyd is being genuine. Boyd, that is the Christian Bale, or Christian Bale, the <laughs> Christian Slater character. Yeah. Um, he is legitimately sad at the fact that he witnessed his friend die, and he's also getting scared at what he has become. His rage has been repressed, and now he's frightened that it's all coming to the surface, just my two cents. Keep up the good work, guys. Sean. Um, okay, so real, real fast. Uh, our commentary track for Very Bad Things uh, is, we talk a lot about the movie and the making of the movie, and some of the controversies behind the movie, but one of the things that's interesting about the movie is how polarizing it is. Mm-hmm. And so we talked a lot about how uh, the movie is some people think it's very funny some people think it's very tragic some people think it's nearly unwatchable and I think all of those things are true simultaneously and I've gone back and forth on the movie multiple times I've liked it at times I've hated it at other times and Whitney has as well um, and so I think it's one of the things interesting about the film is that it's a bit of a Rorschach test and you can look at it and you can see the director being playful or you mm. can just see the human tragedy at play and all of those things are accurate so yeah. um, that's a thank you for sharing your observation about that yeah. Um, yeah. as for how we did it um, we actually uh, are friends with uh, Mark Edward Hoyk who has done some commentary tracks in the past indeed and uh, he knew that uh, they were looking for someone to do a commentary track uh, for was it very bad things? It was for first? very bad things. That was yeah. the first one. Um, um, and uh, he, yeah, Mark, he recommended us, and we got yeah, in touch, so, and it was actually like, pretty straightforward because we, we had essentially done, passed the audition, which yeah, was nice. We, and, uh, we, we we had a podcast. We we were on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, we weren't like just coming in out of the blue. Um, and, and they, they were very they, kind. They they had something they could refer to, like yeah. some work of ours. Yeah, yeah. They weren't just grabbing two random guys and throwing them in a room. But uh, they were very kind and they were very uh, uh, supportive. And we got to do it in an official recording booth as opposed mm. to just in our apartment. Um, and um, it was really, really cool. And uh, uh, I'm actually kind of proud of ourselves. We did both of those commentary tracks in one take. Yeah, we didn't have to go back and record. There were no edits. Yeah. We were well prepared. Yeah, I haven't actually listened to those rec- tracks over and over again because I actually find it a little embarrassing. <laughs> Just to hear hear yourself speak. Yeah, it's like, oh, aren't I hoity-toity. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe there were some. they did some light editing like throughout. But, yeah. like, no. um, yeah, we, we, we did it all in, in one go. 
Uh, and that's how if, that happened. As for anything, we have nothing planned right now. No. Not, not with the Shout Factory or anywhere else. But I don't uh, know if they're even recording anything You and right I have, have pandemic. both worked with a, a man named John Pavlich, mm, who yes. uh, has a, his own podcast called the Sofa Dogs Podcast. Uh, I, I don't think he's doing it anymore, but... Um, I think they're mostly... I think they're still up. <clears> but I, can... I think all of those are still up. And he did record numerous commentary tracks. He and I did numerous commentary tracks, just the two of us. Mm. Uh, the three of us did a couple commentary tracks. Uh, we talked about Scream at one uh-huh. point. We did um, Scream. We did... Uh, Batman v Superman the Ultimate Edition yeah uh, like the three hour cut which as far as I'm concerned is my final word on that topic like mm. I'll revisit it again someday mm. probably like you know mm. but like I've seen the movie so many times and I've had to relitigate how I feel about it so many times that I think spending like three and a half hours talking about every single detail of it is I, I pretty I, thorough I, yeah. I, I laid down my <laughs> thoughts on the film and yeah they'll probably mm. evolve but for now, yeah. I stand by that guy. Here, here, here's my thoughts on Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. My thoughts won't evolve. Mm. There's not a lot of places for my thoughts to evolve on that film. It's not that sophisticated. Well, I agree with it's that. It's complicated. It's <laughs> overwritten to be sure. Yeah. There's too much going on in that movie, and it's three hours long. But the ideas within it are incredibly simple, and the fact that there's more of it doesn't make it more sophisticated. I'm, I'm not speaking of like the ultimate edition and whether or not mm. it's better or worse. There's like a couple of bits in it I like, but I think it's essentially the same movie. Mm. It wasn't like the, the confu- extra. it wasn't confusing the first time. Mm. I don't know what anyone. Yeah, but was, my, I, my th- I, I got it. I saw it multiple times. I got it the first time. When I say my sad. when I say my thoughts on it can evolve, mm. I don't mean I'll understand the plot better. Mm. What I mean is, you know, there are plenty of movies that I liked when I was twenty that I'm not a big fan of now, or vice versa. Mm. Um, and um, sometimes you revisit a movie from a long time ago and you realize, oh my god, I was really too harsh on this. This movie's fun. Maybe someday I'll have that reaction. I can't pretend that that's impossible. Mm. But I'm at a point now where it doesn't happen as often as it used to. And if you ask me to see Event Horizon again, (laughs) I can almost guarantee you I'm going to have the same reaction I had the first five times people told me I need to see Event Horizon because I'm missing something. I'm not... I get it. I'm just not a fan of Event Horizon. I know that sounds like sacrilege to some people. There's a lot I like in the movie. I just don't think it's scary. I'm a huge fan of Event Horizon. I'm not going to go to bat for Event Horizon that much, though. Like I did on our commentary track. We did a commentary for that one as well. But but it's not like this indelible classic that needs to be saved from the ash heap. You know, it's just a movie I enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah, and John Pavlich and I did a commentary track for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, where the two of us pretty much just sort of laid bare how much we hate about that movie. There's it's, a, it's one of the few instances I think you'll find about that movie where people are just wailing on it, because we did not like that film at all. I'm, and I'm perfectly yeah. honest, without getting too far into it, I used to be a huge fan of that movie, and there's still a lot of things I think that are amazing in that movie. Oh, it's hilarious. It's but, really funny. But you swayed me a lot about how toxic it can be. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, anyway, the commentary track can be a really useful tool to... Um, really explore how we feel about a film because we get to actually watch someone have that reaction in real mm-hmm. time. Not a reaction and like, oh, first time I'm watching it, but like, no, someone actually talk about the content of a film. Mm-hmm. And you can see it the way that person is seeing it because they're explaining their thought processes. It's going to be really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, let's move on. Here is a letter from Justin. Hello, Justin. Hi, uh, Justin. Greetings. Your podcast has prompted me to try to be more aware of global cinema. Hmm. Oh, well, good. Great. I'm glad. Yeah. Watch. watch. I'm honored. Watch, spend an entire year watching nothing but movies from other countries. That, that's that's advice I want to give to everybody. Okay. It might, it might actually not be practical advice, but... Uh, Why not? Try, well, you know what people have been doing? And I'll, uh, I, Justin, will get back to you later in just hmm. one second. 
I've seen a lot of people who are making a point to see like um, like every week they're going to watch a different film directed by a woman or a different okay. film directed by uh, a, a, a black filmmaker, for right. example. And that's a great idea because mm. it's so easy if you're just picking whatever happens to be on at a certain time because the industry skews so much in favor of white male filmmakers, white male filmmakers yeah. especially white male Western filmmakers from America or Britain. Um that you can accidentally go a really long time without seeing yeah, one of those yeah, movies. So sure. if you make a concerted effort and you realize just how much of our perspective can be skewed. So that's a good challenge. Maybe every single movie you see throughout an entire year, maybe that's not practical, but that fifth, like that challenge, you want to do one a week, that mm-hmm. might be really illuminating. It might be a little bit more. It might be a little more realistic for some people. Oh, well, all right. Yeah. Um, uh, in trying to figure out what countries I haven't seen anything from, I got stuck on Canada. Okay. Uh, so many movies are filmed there, and it seems like half of Hollywood is from up north. Mm-hmm. Uh, are Tusk and Scott Pilgrim versus the World just talked about Canadian films? What is the actual rule for determining the country of origin for a movie? Do you have any recommendations for Canadian cinema? Well, we do have a lot of great recommendations for Canadian cinema. Oh, there's plenty um, of recommendations for Canadian cinema. There's, a, but, there's actually uh, a lot of, and it's interesting, there's a lot of movies that are made in Canada that never come out here. Mm. A lot of them are in the French language, or uh, 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 a lot of them are like a little, maybe light comedies, for example, that I just don't think is a huge market for here. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of Canadi- great Canadian cinema out there. Um, as for whether or not a movie is from the country in question, mm-hmm. um, that's actually a little nebulous because there's a lot of like filmmakers from other countries mm-hmm. who will come to America and then make an American film. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Americans who will make movies set in other countries with a lot of people from that country. Um, I think the idea, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Whitney, but the idea for me is that a movie, in order to be considered from that country... Mm. Uh, should be made mostly by people within that country and probably mostly financed by that country. The, that's that the, the real determining factor is where the money comes from, actually. Yeah. Uh, where where it is published is determined by who's paying for it. So uh, Tusk and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World are um, American films. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though uh, Kevin Smith, the director of Tusk, is from New Jersey. He's an American filmmaker. It's all American actors. It was an American production. Just because it's set in Canada and was filmed in Canada does not make it Canadian. Right. Uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World was made by a British filmmaker with mostly American actors using American money, even though it was set in Canada, and was based on a book written by a Canadian. Uh, So I think Canada is a very big part of that movie, like the Canadian national spirit or whatever. But no, that is not a Canadian film. I don't think that counts. Okay. Uh, the films David Cronenberg makes are Canadian films because those are well, Canadian mostly. productions. Mostly, mostly. I think uh, I think all of Cronenberg's films were made, made by maybe not The Fly. Yeah, I think he's made a um, few. He's made a few are, American are, yeah. productions, but and he does you know work with a lot of American actors. But I think most of David Cronenberg's films are. Uh, our Canadian productions. You knew I was going to bring up Cronenberg, though, so let's move past Cronenberg real fast. Uh, if you must see, yeah. Cro- by the way, Cronenberg, I think, is one of the best living filmmakers. Oh, he's, he's excellent, um, but it, I, he's if, kind if of kind of well known. He's kind of well known, but I will say that sometimes it's difficult to know where to start mm. with Cronenberg. So here's what I would recommend if you want to get a start on Cronenberg. Uh, I recommend The Fly is considered his most mainstream. It might be a good entry point, but I would argue that his best films are probably uh, Dead Ringers, mm-hmm. uh, The Brood. 
And actually, I'm actually going to say Spider is really underrated. Spider's really good. Especially I'm, underrated. I'm big. I'm a big fan of uh, Existence. Mm-hmm. Um, really fun. Uh, I know you love Videodrome. I, I uh, adore well. Videodrome. Uh, that's one of my f- really one of my favorite films of the '80s. Mm-hmm. It, when you come down uh, to one it. of my favorite horror movies uh, is a Canadian horror movie, uh, Ginger Snaps. I think is one of the best uh, werewolf movies of all yeah, time. Yeah. yeah. Um, trying to think here. Another good Canadian film. Um, I recently learned the history of Strange Brew, uh, like the, oh, yeah. the birth of the Bob and Doug McKenzie characters. They're from SCTV, and mm-hmm. evidently their shows were a little bit short. And they actually, because Canadian television is funded by the Canadian government, uh, I'm probably getting a few of the details wrong, but evidently uh, somebody from the government said, we need some more strictly Canadian content, like something that we can only show in Canada, something we can't export, and that actually like glorifies Canada in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis said, well, I mean... What do you mean something strictly Canadian? Do you just want us to put on, like, toques and drink beer and say, hey, what's up, hoser? So they immediately just came up with the McKenzie brothers to do just that. They yeah. just sort of riffed for a little bit. They didn't think it was going to be funny. They're yeah. actually kind of making fun. They're just fun. being Canadian. It's they're, not- they're, they're making fun of this idea that they have to make these sort of, like, ultimate Canadian characters. And weirdly, that was, the, like, the thing that really caught on yeah. from SCTV. where these like ultra Canadian. And, in fact, Strange Brew, the, the film starring the McKenzie brothers, was... I guess it's kind of a cult hit here in America, but it, but it did come it's... to America. Yeah, well, actually because SCTV of Strange Brew, was a popular but, yeah. show in America. They, yeah. they, they aired here, and uh, mm. so that's one. Uh, speaking of SCTV, an early John Candy movie uh, that I really like, although I hesitate to say John Candy movie, he's like the fifth lead in it. <laughs> uh, but there's a really, really great Canadian crime film called The Silent Partner. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, with Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer, mm-hmm. um, in which Elliot Gould plays a bank clerk and Christopher Plummer robs the bank, and then yeah. Elliot Gould uses the bank robbery as an excuse to steal himself. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, they get in this game of cat and mouse. Christopher Plummer is, uh, I don't think he's ever been creepier, and he's played some nice. really creepy roles. So that's a really, really underrated crime mm-hmm. thrill. I like that one a lot. Uh, if you're looking for something that is specifically about Canada and is made by a really famous Canadian filmmaker, you're gonna go Guy Madden, I'm going to go Guy Madden. Okay, uh, yeah. You should see my Winnipeg. My Winnipeg. Winnipeg is really, really excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guy Madden is from Winnipeg, Alberta, and he um, try he he makes films in a silent film style. Like he shoots in this really kind of grainy uh, silent film uh, camera, black and white mm-hmm. photography. Some of his films are silent. Some of them are not. Uh, well, a lot of them aren't. He actually has a lot of like narration and overdubbing. Yeah. Some scenes will have audio, and some scenes won't. But he also has the silent film intertitles overlapping with the dialogue. It's really dreamy. Uh, yeah. I think My Winnipeg might be his best movie, but that's debatable. Uh, he's made a lot of great um, movies. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of the saddest music in the world. Mm. Um, or, um, oh, what's that one he did? Oh, God. Brand Upon the Brain? No, 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 no. Mm. There was like a vignette film he did not that long ago, and I'm totally spacing um, on it right now. It's yeah, so really. fucking good. But yeah, Guy Madden is is a really important Canadian filmmaker, and he really is bracing and experimental and has a lot mm-hmm. of really interesting things to do. Um, let's see. I rec- recently I recommended uh, The Barbarian Invasions, which I think is a wonderful dramedy. Winnipeg is in Manitoba. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I said Winnipeg, Alberta, and that was wrong. And I, I don't, and I don't want any Canadians writing in and to correct me or anyone else myself. for that matter. Well, yeah. we, we we mm. caught it. <laughs> I'm not going to cut it out of the podcast. I'm going to leave it in because nobody's perfect. But mm. um, is Prom Night a Canadian movie, or was it just shot in Canada? I think it was just shot in Canada, okay. it's, and that's that's the thing. It's kind of hard to 
separate sometimes. So I'm trying to think of like other famous Canadian filmmakers. There's Cronenberg. Well, Adam McGowan. Adam McGowan is who's Canadian. Actually, really hit or miss, if you ask me. Mm. But I think his uh, he had a one-two punch in the '90s of Exotica and The Sweet Hereafter, yeah, which are, really are two good. really astounding dramas. Mm. Uh, they're both heart wrenching. They're both like they're not fun watches, but they're excellently made. Yeah. Um. So those two, I, I actually have never mm. seen anything else he did that I thought was as good as those two. Oh. But those two are enough. What was the the Sarah Polly film about Alzheimer's? Um, oh, uh, away, away from, from her. Me. Away from her. Away from her. Away from me or away from her? I'll look it up. Okay, I think I'll it's away it from her. Yeah, that's a really heartbreaking movie. Sarah Polly is a really good filmmaker, by the way. She's a, another important Canadian. Away from filmmaker. her. Away from her is I yeah. thought was really really good. I did not see her stories we tell. I heard that one was really good. Too, I did. Though. I yeah. think I saw. Is that the one with Seth Rogen in it? No, that's that's the one where she like interviews uh, everybody. Oh, okay. No, I didn't see yeah. that one. Um, yeah, it's like it's about her own family. Oh, I was thinking like of Take This Waltz, which, oh, I, didn't, which okay. I didn't particularly yeah. care for. I know a lot mm. of other people liked it though. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, oh, and and of yeah. course, I have to recommend Splice. Uh, oh, Splice kicks ass. <laughs> Splice is a science fiction horror movie about uh, these two rock and roll geneticists who create a less like sexy monster with like a a stinger and wings, and she looks like a nude model, and it's really kind of creepy. Oh yeah, because it, it turns it, out they put in like some of their own DNA into it. Oh yeah, it's it's super duper creepy. It's one of the better like modern mm. uh, uh, retellings of Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, it's not literally a Frank's... Oh, Black Christmas is a Canadian movie. Black Christmas is The a original Canadian Black movie, Christmas, yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the greatest mm. horror movies of all time. I just say that flat out. Mm. It's a fucking amazing movie. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think. Canada actually has made a lot of really good horror movies. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, I guess Prom Night technically was... A Canadian a horror movie. I'm okay. looking at. I'm, look, I'm trying to jog my memory by looking like a like a list online. Um, but anyway, there's a there's a ton of great Canadian cinema out there. Hopefully, that's that's enough to get you started. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are tons of Canadian movies out there that just never make it to America or don't get a lot of buzz here in America. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's a ton of stuff that we missed. You can do some research online. I'm sure there are like Canadian film critics and publications that have more recommendations for you but yeah. hopefully they get you started we stand by everything we just recommended because there's good stuff from there okay um let's move on okay. uh speaking of canada i here's a writer from a listener from canada oh, named Ryko. hi Ryko. um hi bibs and man with no nickname i am rockmeister mccool um or no nickname That's or no nickname you Call me whatever you like. Just mm. you can even call me late for dinner. Uh, I really enjoyed your the latest episode of episode zero on distant drums. Oh, uh, your you. discussion reminded me of the first time I saw Die Hard in 1989 with several of my friends. After the film, my friends who were raving about the film were shocked to discover that I hated it. Uh, I had several issues with the film, but the subplot I found downright offensive was Reginald Fell Johnson's character arc. As you discussed in your podcast, he's basically a cop dealing with his guilt over accidentally shooting a child. The movie argues that a real man doesn't reflect on what led to the shooting and what could be done to avoid this in the future or how he can openly deal with his emotions of guilt and fear. No, a real man just pushes that stuff aside and picks up a gun and shoots someone in the head. I found that incredibly irresponsible and reprehensible. Uh, When I explained this to my friends, they just said, dude, it's just an action movie. You're reading way too much into this. Mm. I I I just couldn't understand why I they couldn't understand why I couldn't just, quote, shut off my brain and enjoy Uh, the film. Over the years, uh, I have acquired friends that, that I may not always agree with, but are willing to analyze media as much as I am. And that's all that I ask. Uh, sometimes it's hard to sit in a movie theater where the audience is clearly enjoying themselves, yet you are absolutely horrified by what's on screen. That happens.
happens to me a lot. I've been there so <laughs> many times. It's it's so many yeah. times. Uh, for example, uh, I had a friend of mine who were in a theater watching 300, where we were clearly the only two people in the theater not having a good time. It's mm. like everyone else was watching a different movie. Could the audience not see this movie it was nothing more than a glorified love letter to fascism? It is. It is. It it's a celebrates very stylish, fascism. It's a very stylish and entertaining love letter to fascism, and I can understand maybe not picking up on that if you're just looking for an action movie. But if you think oh, about no, it's it, it's right there on the surface. If you, How could think, you, miss ab- it? If you yeah. think about it for thirty seconds, you'll mm. get there. Yeah, it's just oh, everything's in slow mo, but now it's in fast mo. Mm. <laughs> we were we were intoxicated by that for a minute, but seriously, it shouldn't have taken. The end of the movie is admitting that it's propaganda. Yeah, like it's literally the end of the and movie. That was Flat the out story says, of how great the military is. Now let's go kill a different army. That's yeah. literally the point of the movie. Is that mm. it's propaganda? That's the point of the movie. Yeah, so so many action movies, and I'm glad people are finally coming out and saying this. But so many action movies are are like cop and military propaganda. Sure, they are. Yeah, superhero films, especially Batman's yeah. a cop. Well, he's not actually a cop, but he supports the cops, and he's definitely of... Mm. I mean, again, how does The Dark Knight Rises end? I mean, I like The Dark Knight Rises Mm. for calling attention to a lot of the social ills that lead to the downfall of a civilization, Mm. like Gotham. But in the end, it ends with Batman leading an army of cops to beat people up. Mm. Gotham PD are the good guys. Look, Like, they shoot at him in the first movie, then he joins forces with them in the third one. In those movies... And I don't think they ruin the movies. I actually mm. think it makes the movies very interesting. Batman is very conservative in those two movies. Oh, yeah, he for is. sure. He absolutely is. I mean, this first movie, he argues that civil liberties aren't important if we desperately need to catch a bad guy. Mm. That's a hell of an argument to make. And mm. I don't agree with Batman on that. I remember The Dark Knight getting some criticism for that. And I think, I'm not sure if it's criticism or just actually just that something the text wanted to talk about. Mm. But it's in there. Yeah. Um. And is yeah, the letter over? Or? Uh, no, no. He's, uh, he's, let's, he's, let's, uh, let's finish the letter. Uh, Three hundred is a glorified letter to fascism. Not to yeah. mention it's homophobic to a point of absurdity. Yes, yeah, it is. I'm always amazed how Zack Snyder managed to make that movie both homoerotic and extremely homophobic all at the same time. Uh, honestly, sometimes I wonder if the audience uh, are like my old friends who never read too much into it, or if they secretly agree with the offensive messages. Uh, that's something we have to think about too. Um, yeah. Uh, are there times when the two of you gave a movie a negative review because of uh, what the movie was trying to say and not the overall execution of the film, yet other critics ignored these problems and reviewed the film positively? Thank you again for providing a, a, a brief respite in the madness that is 2020, Raiko. And he says, a.k.a. Canada rocks. <laughs> Canada does rock. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, that, that last question, are there movies that we have given a negative review to because of what we've perceived in the film, but our peers, or some of them anyway... Uh, have enjoyed it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it happens all the time. Um, and sometimes it boils down to uh, the fact that film criticism isn't about just judging execution. Because mm-hmm. it is possible to do something really well, but that something that you're doing is very bad. Yeah. So 300 is a rousing, excitingly told action movie. It's paced really, really well. There's some amazing action sequences in it. But as you pointed out, and as we discussed... It's about fascism and it's not against it. Now, that is something that some people might be willing to overlook because they enjoy the action elements. But it troubles me when they don't think about it. Mm -hmm. My thing is this. Film criticism, we can acknowledge that there's good stuff in something. But 
on some level, we are exercising, uh, or, or rather, we are elucidating our sense of taste. Mm-hmm. And if I think a movie's message is in poor taste, then I have trouble enjoying how well executed it is. Yeah. Because I am basically just being fed something that I think is really, really ugly mm-hmm. and really, really troubling. Mm-hmm. And that's, and again, it's my responsibility to explain that. And if someone in the audience disagrees with that, they are allowed to do so. I'm not going to try mm-hmm. to tell them uh, that they must think the way that mm-hmm. I think. But yeah. it is my job to explain the way that I think. Yeah. 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 And hopefully that will help you. If you agree with me, you might want to see a movie or not want to see a movie based on that. And if you disagree with movie, same thing applies. Mm-hmm. I've heard people tell me that if you like a movie, it means I'm not going to like it. Awesome. That's great. That does not make me a bad critic. That's actually a compliment. That makes us very good critics. It means that you know we have been so clear in terms of explaining who we are, where we're coming from, what our thought processes are, Mm. and what this movie did for us, that you know, based on that, whether or not you think this movie is for you. Mm. You don't have to agree with me. You just have to get something out of it. And it sounds like you did. And it's consistent. (laughs) That's a compliment. Yeah, yeah. I always prefer when it's the other way around, when everybody's leaving the, the theater in a huff because they hated a film. I'm like, wow, that was really fun. I, I, I loved White House Down. Um, yeah, me too. Same, same. Yeah. I think it was at a different screening than you, but yeah. No, we were still sitting next to each other. Was, it, you, me, and Alonso Duralde were all sitting in the back row, and we were all just like wiggling around and giggling and having a grand old time. I couldn't remember if I was with you at the screening for that, but I've been uh, well, in plenty well, yeah. of movies. Plenty of movies where I had a grand old time, and then I left, and I found out that everyone around me hated Hellboy 2019. It's fun! I I also hated that movie. You also hated that movie? I can respect that. I understand why you hated that movie. I thought it was like every heavy metal album cover like mm. got like cut up with scissors along with every classic issue of Fangoria and mm. someone just taped them together randomly and that's awesome. Mm. <laughs> I had a good time. Yeah, it was about as cogent as a big splatter of images as well. I don't give uh, a shit. I had a good time. I, I'm I'm wondering how they made a movie where Hellboy like at the in the opening scene is wrestling a werewolf luchador and somehow I'm bored. Like how, how do you I, do that? I don't know how that's you right up, that's that's right up my alley and I should be excited but that was just such a boring I had a scene. really good time with that I don't mm. know how that bored there's you. a I lot didn't... of things that are up my alley about that movie and they just didn't work for me fair enough but uh, yeah it happens it happens to us it happens even. to we us can, a lot I can yeah, sit next to Whitney and find out mm. he hated it and I loved it it, uh, it took me a long time and I've, I've been very vocal about this over the years and this is kind of, weirdly what I'm known for is not liking superhero movies mm-hmm. even though there's a good deal of them that I do like uh but I had a, a big problem with the Avengers movies for the longest time, and it took me a long time to really put my finger on why. And it, it wasn't until I saw Doctor Strange, weirdly, which is like, what, the 19th film in that series? Yeah, where I kind of I kind of realized that, oh, wait a minute, these really are just military propaganda. This is about growing an army. You know, these they mm. have the words war and soldier in the titles, for goodness sake. And yeah, the Avengers are nothing but sort of a freelance military. It's and I think that's that... why, why Civil War kind of rang a bell with me. It's like, oh, wait a minute, we're actually trying to define what you are, this group of yeah. superheroes. You're do just you sort of answer this... to anybody? Yeah, what, Is there what, what, any oversight here? What Can you, do you literally do, do anything yes. you want and there's nothing? If you get people killed, is there mm. any repercussions for like that? As, as little kids, we understand this sort of, oh, good guys versus bad guys dynamic. But yeah, we've been with these movies for so long. We need to address that question. I feel mm. like I was frustrated by Civil War because... 
it didn't really come to a conclusion about that. No, it really should have been clear. And it was very much about how uh, Captain America, who whose namesake is uh, like his name is in that movie. Yeah, he's the protagonist. Uh, he's our our focus. Uh, how he is against government oversight, and he actually comes across as sort of like an ultra conservative kind of guy. Well, it kind of fits that one because you got to remember that Captain America's first movie, he was dyed in the wool ultra patriot. Mm. That in the second movie, he not only ended up in a future that is not the future he fought for, mm-hmm. but also found out that literal Nazis had infiltrated the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Stupid twist. I understand uh, you don't uh, like that twist. Yeah. I understand. I understand you think that that yeah. is letting the actual government off the hook. Yeah. And there's an argument for that. Mm. Fine. I'm not going to fight you too hard on that. I still like that movie. But he's disillusioned by that point. So it actually fits his character arc. Mm. That he's actually gone through this like huge journey and he becomes a, a radical, basically a conservative mm. radical, but a radical. Um, so anyway, it's it's interesting. Wish, wish um, they gone further with that. You know, perhaps they should have. Yeah. Perhaps they should have, and we mm. can have that conversation. But in any case, yeah, it, what we take away from movies matters. If mm. you're only looking at movies because people are doing things on camera and it's fun. You're allowed, mm. but to tell people who are actually engaging with the art and actually getting something out of it that they're the ones doing it wrong is way off base. Yeah. You're allowed to just enjoy a movie on a superficial level, but if other people say they are actually reading into the text, they're not doing it wrong. Mm. Okay, they're, they're and doing e- it correctly. In and fact. even and even f- movies that seem flighty. Or, you know, genre, like action, horror, whatever, that Mm. might ordinarily be consumed as general entertainment. These movies teach us messages. They normalize things. They tell you these behaviors are the kind of things that it's okay to laugh at or Mm. to be excited by or to support. And if those behaviors are not something that you support or that you think should be supported, it's okay to talk about that and to say, I think this is in poor taste. Yeah, yeah, and I say that when it re- when it comes up, mm. and every once in a while, there's a movie that I disagree with, but within the confines of the narrative, I think it gets away with it. Something like Taken, for example, which is a which is a very fascist movie, but it's also a very limited movie in its mm. scope, mm. and I think it's possible to enjoy that movie, even though it's basically just saying well, Liam Neeson is allowed to do whatever the fuck he wants. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm saying there there are degrees, yeah. but. Yeah, sometimes it's just a bad taste, according to whoever's watching it. I, I do like that a lot of the uh, the figures in our action cinema have come to represent a very kind of uh, bold, jingoistic version of American macho might mm-hmm. are not themselves American. You think of Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's Austrian. Mm-hmm. Liam Neeson is from Ireland. Yeah. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme is from Belgium. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, Sylvester Stallone is from Mars. Uh, <laughs> Shut up. There's a few. Sylvester yeah. Stallone is from America. Yeah. Um, oh, who I just had. Uh, I think one of the great examples of someone who was vaunted as maybe an anti-hero, but certainly a hero for many, many years. But mm. uh, it's kind of hard to watch a lot of stuff that he does now. Is Kiefer Sutherland on Twenty Four? Yeah, he yeah. violates civil liberties like well, I mean, eating that, that, bacon for breakfast. That, like it sounds real natural. That, to that's him. like a, yeah, another show that's like conservative to the point of fascism. And, and the idea but it's, is that it's so exhilarating to watch that you're kind of hooked. And the idea is that you know, oh, it's such a this is such an exception. An exception has to be made this time, mm. right? And after eight seasons, you realize there's nothing but exceptions. Mm. That's all he does. Now that's all he does. He never. Way. He doesn't have to do it the right way. But because the narrative always supports him, he's never. Mm. 
that wrong. Mm-hmm. There, there was you one. Know? I remember so, one episode where we say, okay, like uh, Kiefer Sutherland and like another guy had trapped a bad guy, and they were in a hotel room. It's like, okay, now we got to torture this guy because they just torture everybody. Yeah. And Kiefer, Suther- Kiefer Sutherland says, ah, I don't know about. It. I've tor- This is like season eight. I've tortured too many people. And uh, <laughs> what what year are we in now? Anyway, it's like 2040 at this point. And uh, as and but the other guy says, no, we got to torture him because we need information. So uh, Kiefer Sutherland says, okay, I'll rip apart a lamp and stab him with electrodes, and that'll and he gets shocked and he says, I still don't know anything. Kiefer Sutherland says, yeah, torture doesn't work. And the other guy pulls out a knife and stabs him in the kneecap. Yeah. And he says, okay, I'll tell you everything now. The message there being, oh, I didn't torture hard enough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's some fucked up shit, man. Yeah, yeah. That sounds like, fucked up shit. You need to torture people, but you need to torture them real bad in order yeah. to get what you need. That was a fucked up show. It really yeah. fucking was. <laughs> There's a lot of cool things about that show. Mm. Morally, it was pretty fucked up most of yeah, the time. Yeah. yeah. Anyway... My point is this. It's all a matter of taste. It's all a matter of where we're coming from. And again, as a film critic, it is not my responsibility to share your taste. Mm. It is my responsibility to explain mine. Yeah. And, and if expl- in explaining explain my what's, taste... what's in a film and yeah. why we think that was uh, important. And if in explaining that taste, you realize that you're either on the same wavelength as me or you're not, mm. that's part of the job. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Anyway... Hopefully that answers the question. Uh, here's a letter from David. Hi, David. Uh, Hi. Dear Messrs. Sir Bibbs and Count Whitney. My name is Whitney. Oh, you're a, you're a knight and I'm a count. I love it. Mm. My name is David. Hi, David. So you're a rank mate. I, I'm not exactly sure. I think counts are... Count. 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 Sure uh, count would... Counts are higher up than knights? I think so. I don't I know. count could tell a knight what to do. Well, maybe so. All right. Anyway. Uh, whatever. I'll take Neither it. Neither of um, us are British. <laughs> I, it's, I've been a long-time listener and have never wanted to, uh, never been able to think of a topic worthy to write to you about until now. Prepare yourselves for a bit of a rant and a ramble. We love these. That's fine. Please. Uh, during my time in quarantine, I felt myself going a bit Jack Torrance crazy. I, I imagine crazy like Jack Torrance, not crazy for Jack Torrance. Um, yeah, that's fine, too. Shining's a good movie. What do I do? What should my outlet be? Well, sirs, with nothing but time and a bit of expendable income, I have increased my Criterion collection tenfold. Ooh. It all started out by uh, wanting to own the box set for the Incredible Lone Wolf and Cub series. Oh, but then I needed series. more and hailed the Lady Snowblood films, the mm. films of Akira Kurosawa. So you're going, you're veering real hard into the samurai into, into, stuff, which is yeah, awesome. Uh, once the samurai fix was done, I started pouring through recommendations on their website, mm. and I kept seeing the film Naked by uh, recommendations for Naked by director Mike Lee. I'd never heard of the director, but the constant, uh, constant, almost they live level of in-your-face recommendations <laughs> I kept on seeing. I had to do it. It is one of the most incredibly nihilistic films I've ever witnessed with my peepers. <laughs> Anchored by an outstanding performance by David Lewis. Have you seen Naked? Actually, that's one of the Mike Lee films oh, I haven't seen. It's, it's, it's rough, but I, it's good. I love Mike Lee. I just never got around to that one I yet. I love Mike Lee. Um, what's the point of this letter, you ask? I'm not too sure. I just maybe wanted to boost the majesty of the Criterion Collection. To realize that even in the darkest times as film fans, we have the perfect opportunity to educate ourselves more. This is not a dark time for film fans. This is actually quite a good time for film it's fans. A, it's a bad time to, <coughs> to love movie theaters. It's a bad t- Yeah, if, if you're somebody who studies sort of like the major Hollywood releases and blockbuster patterns, mm-hmm. this you is might, a bad time. You, you might be starving for content mm-hmm. right now, I'm not going to lie. But there's, again, 
if this quarantine had happened 20 years ago, mm-hmm. people would have had way less options to entertain themselves. Yeah, yeah. And now we have plenty of streaming services. Many of them have free trial periods, so you can try them out. And you have plenty of time in some cases, so you can probably get through a lot of Criterion yeah. movies within that trial period. Watch Shoah. Okay. It's, it's nine hours long. Okay. Just get through that whole damn thing in one day because you got time. It's a baby. bit of a sit. I'm going to warn you right <laughs> now. It is not a, it's not, it's, it's not, it's yeah, it doesn't trip along. It's maybe not, tell it's, people what Shoah is in Shoah, case they haven't heard Shoah of it. Shoah is a Holocaust documentary. Uh, okay. <laughs> Just so you know. Shoah is a nine at nine hour uh, Holocaust documentary. Yeah. It is, it Watch is it. It's legendary. great. Yeah. It's legendary, but uh, yeah, it's, mm. it's, it's a, it's a rough sit in some mm. ways. So, maybe be ready uh, yeah. for that but uh, uh, but, but the with, cra- with I, I feel like with the blockbusters sort of on hold like pushed mm-hmm. aside everyone says oh no you know film cinema is dying yeah. and and indeed theaters may not survive this and that gives me a great deal of distress yeah that does uh, I, I don't know if they're going to survive and if people are going to rush back as soon as they can or if they're going to uh, stay away well, again we're um, in california they're saying that some theaters can open as early as this week mm-hmm. With, but a um, lot of a lot of people are saying, "Ooh, I don't want to do that." And as a so, film yeah. critic, I'm going to tell you this mm. right now: I'm not going. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, don't want to go back. And yet. I don't um, think. Listen, I understand that people I can make their own choices, make mm. their own decisions. I don't think it's safe right now. I think even if uh, movie theaters are up to 25 percent capacity, that's still a lot of people mm. to be sharing a room with. And it is my understanding that. A lot of movie theater chains are saying that masks are required for uh, their employees, but not necessarily for the people in the theater. Yeah. So that's a lot of people laughing, mm. screaming, coughing. I was at a film. This is a long time ago, but mm. I was at a film. I was at uh, 22 Jump Street. Mm. And some joke was so funny. Someone spit their soda in the back of my head. Mm. I'd, I'd be okay with that. I would not be okay yeah. with that during a pandemic. No, not during a pandemic. Okay, and my point is this. There's a lot that can happen. You're in, And again, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but it's a practical concern right now. Their pandemic isn't solved. Mm. It's still a problem. There's a lot of new I, cases that are you know, that are out and about. Understand, it bi- might not be bus- worth the risk right now. People are getting antsy and businesses are getting antsy, but we're still in danger. And that's yeah. that's just because you're antsy doesn't and mean just, you should take and, the risk. And it's not like a lot of other things in the news cycle where, oh, we've moved on from talking mm. about it. So it's okay to just do other stuff. Mm. This is still a thing. Yeah. yeah. So I want everyone, I, 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 I care about your health and your well-being. And even if you are young and feel confident that you'll be okay, which isn't necessarily true. But even if you're not, you're confident about it, that doesn't mean you can't spread it to someone who isn't. And there is no situation in which I can imagine like me dying or someone I care about dying. I know this isn't necessarily the likeliest scenario, but Mm -hmm. people are dying over this. There's no situation in which I can imagine me or someone I care about dying and me thinking to myself, man, seeing Tenet was worth it. Mm -hmm. I don't care how good the movie is. I'm not there. Hmm. You get to make your own decisions. I'm not trying to shame or bully anyone into doing what we're doing. But seriously, don't just do it willy-nilly. Hmm. Think about it. Anyway, the, and make sure your theater you're going to is taking precautions if that's the case. Uh, there is more to this line. I apologize. Uh, okay. Sorry. Anyway, uh, to, to realize that even the darkest times, the film fans uh, have the per- perfect opportunity to educate, educate ourselves more. Yes. I find it fascinating that the Criterion is able to curate such an outstanding library of film and keep these help keep these films alive. I apologize for the ramble. I just can't get over how many films I've had the privilege to be able to watch. Oh, such a strange time. Hell, I even watched Joa. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that's funny. Oh my oh, god, you had no I, idea. I, I, didn't, I didn't even read ahead. That's um, amazing. I'd love to hear your two fine gentlemen discuss the merits of such an incredible collection. In closing, I thank you for your work. Mm. I admire you both dearly, and listening to you both has been an incredible dose of Xanax for an anxiety fueled mind. Thank uh, you. So thank much. you, David. Um, um, Criterion. Um, I think we talked about them before, but let's mm. talk about them right now. Criterion Collection is a distributing company that they don't own most of the movies that they distribute. Mm. They license them from other places or they acquire the rights to them from other places. Mm. They started off as a Laserdisc company and they would release a lot of high quality Laserdiscs like commentary tracks from various studios. But when the shift to DVD came around, uh, they started really focusing on curation and they very quickly became a symbol of not just quality, mm. but significance. If the Criterion Collection put out a movie, that movie, and, and they've yet to disprove this. They've been so consistent over the years. I don't like every movie they've ever put out, but there are very few movies they've ever put out. What I would argue that calling it, putting in the Criterion Collection is wrong. It's a bad call. Yeah. yeah, like I don't necessarily like it, but yeah, this probably should have a Criterion Collection. Um. So if it's in the Criterion Collection, it's probably worth at least thinking about watching. Somebody thought about that. Yeah. Uh, and there was there was a discussion say, yeah. had and they made sure it was of artistic or historical merit. And then they put it out. There was a time when uh, you could kind of and this I'm thinking back in like the 1940s when you could look at a different studio and expect a different kind of picture. Uh, mm, like different, yeah. like Universal made the certain kind, of, different kind of picture than Warner Brothers. Yeah. Then that made a different kind of picture than Fox. And uh, there's still some some studios that do that. You mm, know, A24 puts out a different mm, kind of independent type movie than Focus Features. Exactly. Usually. But uh, when you look at the bigger studios, they're all they're largely interchangeable. Some of them yeah. team up to make. Like they uh, might things. have different yeah. franchises, but take the franchises mm. out of the equation. Is mm. a Universal non-franchise movie really anything that Warner Brothers wouldn't put out? Yeah. No. Or, or if if uh, Universal had that rights to Harry Potter, how would those movies be different? They wouldn't. They'd be the same movies, just you'd have to... Yeah, maybe the, maybe the filmmakers would be different. Maybe the adaptation yeah. process would be slightly different, but it wouldn't be like, ah, now it's a Universal film. Exactly. No, it wouldn't it be able to be a slightly different film. Um, I feel like the Criterion Collection is one of the, the last bastions, you know, what, like what kind of film you're getting. And yeah. like, you actually understand that the studio is putting a lot more thought. They're not sort of haphazardly releasing just something with broad appeal. They're, mm-hmm. they're really thinking about what they're going to distribute. Uh, and, uh, yeah, since they started releasing DVDs, they, they got into the imagination right away inter- mm-hmm. uh, for film collectors. DVDs were way more successful than anybody thought they were going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took the world by storm. And, well, the picture quality yeah. was now consistent and it wouldn't fade over time the way it would yeah, a lot, with VHS. A lot, of, a lot of people were paying attention to aspect ratios, which they didn't do on VHS. Well, and that helped. Uh, it helped that um, by the time DVDs were the dominant force in the mm-hmm. video market, people started having widescreen televisions, which yeah, were, well, were, had been available for decades, but weren't like consumer, mm-hmm. like they weren't affordable for a lot of people. Yeah, well, and... Uh, although that that was a little bit more that coincided a little bit more with the Blu-ray revolution, but uh, in fact, DVDs were invented to have the best possible picture on a cathode ray tube television. Mm. That's the the it was like supposed to be the best that we had for that medium. And mm. so if if you actually had a a Blu-ray player and you still had a CRT TV, there wasn't much of a difference. No, in the I, I, I'm going to fight uh, you on this. I remember mm. when I got a DVD player and I finally and I've been hooking up to a cathode ray TV and mm. it looked good. Then I finally got a high-definition television, and I just watched a DVD with just component cables, not even HDMI, mm. 
The difference was night and day. Oh, okay. It, it was significantly better. Yeah. Uh, same so, so DVD, remember, same, same player, yeah. just different TV. I just I remember watching a VHS of The Third Man and then putting in the Criterion DVD of The Third Man, and yeah, that was night and day. Honestly, well, and it also helps, you know, how, how have they cleaned it up? Is yeah. it like, you know, a high-quality presentation? Mm-hmm. But in any case, yeah, Criterion is a symbol of quality, and basically, mm-hmm. yeah, you could pick a random movie from the Criterion Collection mm. and probably get something out of it. Yeah. Um, there are some Criterion films I don't like. Uh, I'm, I'm, Michael Bay has a few films on there. Uh, and those were early on, like, where they're trying to sort of, like, earn a little revenue, I think, yeah, to fund, Michael, fund the machine. Yeah, putting out the Rock and Armageddon, which I don't even going to fight. I think you can those say are what you will. Those are tour pictures. Those are all tour pictures. Those are significant pictures from the era in which they came out. You know, Criterion puts out Hitchcock movies. Hitchcock movies are blockbusters when they came out. That's it's true. not that different in concept. Mm. And um, I know I know some filmmakers have deals with the Criterion Collection. They put out every Wes Anderson film, for mm-hmm. instance. I don't need a Criterion edition of The Life Aquatic, for instance. I don't think that's a very good movie. Um, but I think Wes Anderson is an interesting filmmaker, yeah. so I think it's good for them to be consistent at the very least. I remember asking, uh, I interviewed Whit Stillman once and Whit Stillman Ooh, okay, has several yeah. movies on the Criterion collection. Mm. He's got, I like Whit uh, Stillman. Whit Stillman's a great filmmaker. Mm. I love him a lot. Uh, but, uh, Metropolitan, Last Days of Disco, I think they finally put Barcelona on. And Barcelona, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I asked him when, I think we're going to, when are they going to put Damsels in Distress on there? Because that mm. one isn't on there. And he said, you know, I made that for a different, for a studio and they have the rights to it for a while, but hopefully eventually they'll let go of the home video rights and we can put it on Criterion because mm. he understands that that's a symbol of quality as well. And they'll probably put out a nicer yeah. set. Damsels in Distress, by the way, is a delight. <laughs> is a really super mega charming movie and if you're a Greta Gerwig fan and mm. she really blew up like a couple of years after that um, that's a great Greta Gerwig movie she stars in it she didn't like write or direct it but it's mm. charming as fuck um, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask you this just to, to keep the conversation going mm. can you name like name me like two or three movies that you were introduced to by the Criterion Collection. Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah. Like, I, I wouldn't have paid attention to these or things. Or you wouldn't they have known yeah. they were existed or that they were significant. Um, or even it's just they, they mattered yeah. because they were Criterion. I think uh, a combination of the Criterion Collection and Roger Ebert steered me toward Children of Paradise. Okay. Uh, Les Enfants du Paradis by Marcel Carnet. Um, that's a, a film that was made uh, in France during World War II under the auspices of the Nazi regime mm-hmm. and managed to make this gigantic, like, three, almost four-hour-long epic film that took place over the course of many years about a love triangle amongst uh, theater performers in France at the time. Uh, it's it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's epic, it's everything. Uh, and, yeah, that's a film that probably wouldn't have thought to watch. I ended up buying the Criterion uh, DVD, which I still have. I'd like to upgrade that one at some point. Um, I owe the Criterion Collection for introducing me to the works of Seijun Suzuki. Ah, nice, yeah. Uh, Seijun Suzuki had a very uh, particular way of making crime movies where they were badass, but also mm-hmm. kind of self-parodies. And they were very broad and sometimes very unrealistic, but they mm. took place in a world where that kind of non-realism made sense. And yeah. I think if you're a fan of like some of the broader Quentin Tarantino movies, and I don't mean like Django Unchained, I mean like you know the sort of the Kill Bill kind of thing. I think you will appreciate Seijun Suzuki's films, uh, yeah. particularly Branded to oh. Kill. That's probably my favorite. Okay, but um, yeah, it, all of us. Right, Branded to Kill, Tokyo cool. Drifter, uh, Tokyo yeah, Drifter is pretty badass too. Um, yeah. Oh, and you know what? I was introduced to uh, Lynn Ramsey and David Gordon Green via the, cr- oh, there you uh, go. the Criterion Collection. Uh, their first film, they, they've, 
Uh, one of the things that one of the many things the Criterion Collection does is try to find filmmakers who are displaying a good deal of talent and uh, idiosyncrasies like right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they found Lynn Ramsey uh, and they put her first film, first feature film, Ratcatcher, on on their in their collection. Yeah, in 1999, and that was that's a great movie. I love Ratcatcher. <laughs> uh, and around the same time, David Gordon Green's first feature film, George Washington, was also put on the Criterion Collection. I think yeah. I watched those in the same week, Ooh, and I real and I realized. I love movies about little boys growing up in trashy environments uh, because uh, I've seen several films with that premise and they tend to be really quite good. Cool. Like Hector Babenco's uh, Pichota is another one of those. Um, Los Olvidados by Luis Buñuel. Uh, Small Change by Francois Truffaut. I like that one a lot, yeah. Uh, yeah, th- these films about uh, k- kids living bad lives yeah. tend to do, I don't know, do something for me. All right. Um, okay, let's move on. That was a really great letter. Thank yeah. you for that. Uh, here's a letter from uh, Deepak. Hello, Deepak. Um, dear Bibbs and Sir Rockmeister McCool. Hello. Hello. Uh, hello from over the pond in England. Hello. Hi. Uh, first of all, thanks for the wonderful hours upon hours of entertainment you have gifted me over the past few years. I recently completed my PhD in international law at King's College London. Wow, congratulations. That's Mazel, amazing. Yeah, Mazel tov. And uh, you guys really... Uh, Got me through when I needed to chill out between writing my thesis. Uh, thanks for getting me through it. Oh, that that means a lot to us. And I know I everyone's going through like, some hard stuff right now. And like, if our podcast can help you through like a mental health moment, like you need a break and you just need to hear about us talk about Star Trek or whatever, <laughs> that's that's why we do it. So I'm glad um, to hear it. I wanted to hear your insights on the sex scene in mm. the film If Beale Street Could Talk. And its significance in breaking into the mainstream, relatively speaking, that is. First of all, this was a truly wonderful film about love in all its forms, and Barry Jenkins has quickly become one of my favorite working directors. In particular, I found the sex scene to be utterly mesmerizing, and more importantly, a tender representation of sex that is often missing in mainstream cinema at best. The scene presented sex with a softness, honesty, and epitomized love in a manner that shredded away all falsities. Combine that with Nicholas Brittle's simply spellbinding soundtrack, it was a scene that was almost ethereal. I find this scene to be extremely important because it is in complete contrast with how sex is often portrayed in mainstream cinema. Yeah. I would say if it's even portrayed at all. Um, well, often, yes. Yeah, often the hypersexualization we see lacking depth and emotion, portraying women as objects, sometimes men too, and there's often a luridness to the sex that permeates into the society's perception of sex. I'm not saying that a hypersexualization is a bad thing. Sex can be re- represented in this way, but not always. Uh, so, uh, my question to you, uh, both threefold, uh, my question to you both is threefold. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, films have the power to shape minds and perceptions, so should we be concerned with Hollywood's typical representation of sex? Quickly, yes. yes. We'll get back to that. Yeah. Second, how important do you think it is that uh, the sex scene in If Beale Street Could Talk uh, is in representing sex in the manner that it did? And finally, are there other sex scenes in films that you found equally captivating or have or have presented sex with a little more depth and tenderness. Uh, thank you for taking the time to read my letter. Apologies if it was a little long. Don't apologies. Uh, please stay safe and healthy with all that is going on. You guys have done an amazing job of getting us through this lockdown, and I appreciate all your efforts. Best, Deepak. Uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, Sex scenes in Hollywood mm. tend to be intermissions. Uh, it's when the action stops, and you can have a fun little bit of essentially side titillation uh, where the story kind of takes a little bit of a break. It doesn't really matter uh, how they have sex or the manner in which they have sex or the feelings about the sex, just that they had it. And yeah. and watching it is actually just sort of a, a little bit of v- visual treat. It, it is yeah. always, always, always 
a gratuity. Uh, in, in an interview, I remember... 99.999% I rem- I, I'm, I'm, Yeah, unless you're watching something like uh, Short Bus. Well, if uh, Beale Street you know, could talk is a good or if, example. Yeah, if Beale Street could talk. Like, how the, the manner in which they make love is actually very important. But yeah, uh, I, I remember reading an interview with David Duchovny where they said, uh, you know, how do you feel about gratuitous nudity and is you know is is it worth doing nudity what if his like the scene calls for it or not and david duchovny said no matter how you film a scene there's a way to film it without nudity mm-hmm. you don't need nudity in any scene yeah but a lot of filmmakers choose to do that why because the filmmakers probably want to see it and they assume that the audience also wants to see the same thing usually it's a straight male filmmaker so you're going to see a lot of nude women yeah and women are often objectified just because of pervasive sexism throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunately something I've come to accept. Uh, I don't like it, but you know, it's something I've, I've just gotten used to. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, th- the fact that we don't think about the sex or the way people have sex or a little bit more of a frank conversation about sex and sexuality in Hollywood films has, yes, made the entire industry lean super conservative yeah. to the point where there's not even sexuality discussed in these yeah. movies it's, anymore. It's either prurient mm. or or um, fetishistic. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying there isn't a place for that ever, but when it's all they got, that's mm. pathetic. And, I, I remember and, as a result, a, and as a result, we're not seeing enough healthy sex mm. in being represented. And when it's not represented, it might as well be gone to some people because mm. people aren't seeing it elsewhere. Yeah, we're, and as we're, a result, they're getting it from something like, you know, a, adult cinema, mm. which is m- not really about love usually i'm not no. saying it's never been done but you know it's it's performative it's a different kind of vibe yeah. entirely uh, so D- dan savage referred to porn sex as kabuki sex that is the perfect way that it can happen sure nothing ever goes wrong in porn no, yeah, nobody ever like yeah no, nobody but it's but, idealized yeah. from a male perspective right? exactly but, time. but just you, you yeah. never see a porno movie where you accidentally lean on your partner's hair or it's like really <laughs> uncomfortable and you say okay yeah. wait, wait stop stop for a yeah. minute or no, no one ever has to a get up and, moment or yeah they have to get up and pee you yeah. know none of that ever happens but you're, but you're right the sex scene in if Beale street could talk which is a really beautiful movie and we mm. people it's we, it got an Academy Award. It deserved more than one Academy Award. Mm. I think the score should have won as well, at least. Mm. Um, but it's an absolutely breathtaking movie. And I think the sex scene in If Beale Street Could Talk is really... Yeah, it feels revolutionary because it is filmed with, like, a tender gaze. Mm. You know? It is filmed with actual, like, human connection and depth that people are that the characters are and it's after this really sweet date mm-hmm. and they've talked a lot and the sex happens very or, or uh, naturally and they're both taken with each other's physical beauty and then they have sex and yeah the way <laughs> Barry Jenkins films people is God, everyone should be looked at that way. <laughs> if, if, if everyone was looked at the way that Barry Jenkins looked at the people in his movies, mm-hmm. I think the world would be a better place because he loves people. He His movies love people. And there are bad people in some of his movies. There are mm-hmm. barely people who do very bad things. Yeah. But he cares about the, the characters that he puts on screen and he cares about 
how they are presented and the cares that they are presented with sensitivity. Even people who are terrible, like Naomi Harris plays a ter- plays just a bad mother in Moonlight. Oh yeah, yeah. An incredible performance. But like even at the end, he finds some love for her mm. in the final act of that movie, and it's a, a tainted love. Like there's there's negativity and baggage there, but. He cares about her as a person. Yeah, yeah. And I think that bleeds into If Beale Street Could Talk. And I think that sex scene is... It feels revolutionary because we just don't have that. Mm. We just don't. Yeah. And that's a shame. Especially not with black characters. That's oh, another yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I... This has been written about ad nauseum. Uh, like, about 20 years ago, this was a big topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, we came to the conclusion long ago that sex in cinema had been replaced by violence. Uh, yeah. And, and not, not even, like, harsh violence. Just sort of a, a fun, frothy PG-13 level of violence. Yeah. Uh, the sex had been removed. Hard violence had been removed. Now all we have is, like... Guys hitting each other, and that's what we have instead of sex. Yeah, or, Never, or shooting each other, yeah. and it's not really gory. It's just sort of it's like, like every, it's fun that that happened. I remember a lot of people were saying about the Marvel movies. It's like, how come these characters don't don't like aren't declaring themselves to be queer? None of the characters have any sexuality in those movies. They might hardly be, they, any. They yeah. might say all like, like, like uh, there's Tony a Stark scene, sleeps around. Yeah, a bit, Tony Stark uh, like at the beginning of that series, but notice he doesn't do that later in the series. Oh, yeah, he's uh, married, he, but he, yeah. he, might, he might like so like there's a scene where he's ogling Scarlett Johansson and. In the Avengers, the camera ogles Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, uh, but you know, in terms of like people actually displaying any kind of like sexual attraction for one another, that's not in those movies. Not especially. No, it's like make Valkyrie gay. Why? She's not gonna have sex with anybody. <laughs> I'll just imagine everybody's bi. I don't which, care. Which, which, which raises yeah. the question: At that point, why not? Yeah, seriously, you're not gonna like. You might as well. Like, they're not movies about characters and their full complete existence they only exist in these action movie dynamics and the love that they have for another is very chaste i mean i don't know if that's a disney mandate but it feels like a disney thing it really does um and that predates what disney was doing with them but i don't know like i can see like in some of the earlier movies like the way that natalie portman looks at chris hemsworth in thor (laughs) she's aroused she's like looking at this incredibly handsome guy and going damn like and is and we all are. This is Chris Hemsworth. He's a he's built like a Greek god. I get it, but like oh, an Australian god anyway. <laughs> well, touche. But uh, yeah, like you. Anyway, my point is that sexuality has vanished mm. from a lot of our cinema. Yeah, well, there's a lot of sexiness. I'll- but there's almost but no sex. What am I going to do with sexiness? Cinema. Yeah, um, yeah. The, uh, I, yeah. I remember having a discussion with Dave White about this. How every, everybody on TV and everybody in movies it, like reads as sexy, but it's the kind of sexy that is devoid of actual sexuality. Yeah, like they're wearing these really fetishy outfits. Well, yeah, but you'd have to spend three hours removing that before you actually have sex. And it gets to uh, the point where like when the movie actually does have sex in it, mm. something like 50 shades of gray, which mm. say what you will about its quality was one of the few mainstream movies to come out in the last 10 years that actually had sexuality in it. Like was basically sp- like a lot of about sexuality. Yeah, and there was uh, a lot of it and it was about mm. sex and they couldn't hide the sex and they embraced the fact that this is about sex it's an awful movie, but <laughs> to varying degrees, mm. some movie, one of the, some of the movies in the series are better than others. But 
Like wherever, when you're in a theater watching it, you could tell people were kind of uncomfortable because they're not seeing. Used to at least seeing that was that my anymore, experience. Yeah. They're not used to seeing people have sex while we're in a group uh-huh. anymore. It became this new mm-hmm. awkward thing. Whereas movies used to have sex in it. Not every movie, but it wasn't as uncommon. Mm. Or PG mo- PG rated movies that have yeah. nudity in them. Sure. Um, I think. The one exemplar of of how cinema had turned is Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch, a movie I loathe, by the way, mm-hmm. um, where this is a movie about young women who are essentially enslaved as sex workers. Yeah. And they have to dance for rich male clients. And the main character, her name is like Babyface or Baby, baby, doll, baby something yeah. and um, Baby Spice. I don't know. Uh, she is evidently like the best dancer ever. Yeah. The thing is, we don't see those sexy dances. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's really stylized because Zack Snyder. Everything's yeah. just stylized to o- the teeth. O- overbearing. Yeah, to the point where it's really obnoxious. And even if we were to see the dance, it would be just stripper dance. It, you know, yeah. may- maybe really well choreographed, but you, it, mm. there wouldn't. It wouldn't be about the actual sexuality. It would be about the display for the male gaze. But Zack Snyder doesn't even do that. He cuts away from the dances. He takes all of the sex out and replaces them with essentially anime violence fantasies. Yeah. Sex so, is yeah. literally portrayed as, as violence. Yeah, They're sword, sword fighting and kicking and, yeah. and harming. Yeah. Yeah. Sex and violence are one and the same in that movie. And that's kind of where I think a lot of modern audiences heads are because they've been trained by all these PG-13 action films yeah. to not think about sexuality and to think about light violence instead. Don't yeah. don't don't get horny. Don't, don't get horny. Don't engage with don't the sexuality. Engage with sexuality. Yeah. Just think about hurting another person. I think that's incredibly unhealthy. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are bright enough to understand that that's what's going on. Yeah. But I feel like we are selling ourselves very very short by not having enough movies, especially in the mainstream, that deal with human sexuality and talk frankly about it. Yeah, yeah, mm. I mostly agree. Um, mm. Yeah. That, that's my rant anyway. No, no, no. Um, you're, you're, you're not wrong. And I think, and get back to the letter, uh, mm. if Peel Street could talk, I think is an exemplary example of how mm. sexuality can be handled in a story without either negating it and just looking away and pretending it doesn't exist mm. or without it just becoming like a, a show. Yeah. Um, so that's an excellent letter. Thank you very, very much for writing it. Okay, uh, one, a, couple, a couple more? Yeah, I'll do one more. All right, one more. Uh, here's a letter from Greg B., uh, and he takes issue with us in this letter. Uh, uh-huh. Hi, gang. I love the podcast, but I hate some of the movies. <laughs> Fair enough. Fine. Uh, the, the movie I particularly despised recently was Blood Machines. Oh, no. Uh, it was, I like that one. Uh, uh, Greg says, it was like a dude bro explaining feminism for the first time. <laughs> Like the writer was some guy who was high during the sexual assault scene from Blade Runner where Deckard wouldn't let Rachel leave and was like, no, man, you can't treat women like that. Women are like, like ships. You ride the ship, not hurt it. (laughs) I believe the film is feminist, but from a trashy man's perspective. I think that's a a fair criticism. I can see that. I can see that. I'm not going to fight that too hard. Um because most of the women are like nude objects, for instance, but it is about their revolution. But they are films. Like, it's it's like a nude it's, it's a yeah, and mm. I don't think that the movie 
like overly sexualizes them aside from the fact that they're nude which mm. you could argue is far enough um to to make yeah. that point to, valid. to go back to our previous letter yeah, about yeah, how yeah. nudity is not ever seen so if somebody's yeah. naked they're instantly sexualized right 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 i yeah okay i think there's right. an argument to be made here and maybe i need mm. to rethink it a little bit mm. and i appreciate your point of view here's a little bit more uh, my okay. question stems from the objectification of women in the film yeah. uh, it's not quite as male gazy as an american film would depict it cough cough ex machina Mm-hmm. I actually think Ex Machina is specifically about misogyny, but we can get into mm-hmm. that. Um, but I feel there's still an aspect of exploitation to the movie. The, uh, the ships with <laughs> the, these ships with rockin' tits are born from dead ships, so of course they would be in their birthday suits. But did they have to have their nipples exposed, for instance? Mm. Uh, how come there weren't any male ships with dongs? <laughs> Am I just a prude who can't appreciate art? I feel like the film is trying to have its cake and eat it too, and would greatly appreciate your thoughts on this, Greg. Uh, I think this um, goes a little bit to what we were saying in our previous letter. I think sexuality is a big part of that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a big part of Blood Machines. And I think while it, it is presented in an exploitative way, it's such a stylized film that uh, people who have seen a lot of movies can uh, see the nudity as not just drawing, not just sort of adding to the content of the movie, but drawing on a, like a larger... Uh, idea of what exploitation films would offer. This film is trying to give mm. you a lot of salacious, exciting, colorful imagery, and the nudity, I think, plays into that. Um, uh, it, it's part of the style, and that may sound like me trying to justify a male filmmaker's need to film nude ladies. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna reject this but, premise out uh, of hand. That uh, that uh, the mm. premise of the letter. I think that's. That's a reasonable concern. Mm. My it, it didn't it wasn't my interpretation right off the bat. Mm. Um, I thought it was about sort of the way that um, sort of misogynistic exploitation extends into all facets of mm. sort of a patriarchal society, yeah, the, the, and the, the, that as the, we extend into the stars and as we expand uh, our technology, that kind of dehumanization. Uh, is going to run rampant and something that needs to be fought against, and that by by representing non-human concepts mm-hmm. as nude humans, uh, their humanity became unquestionable. Yeah, that was what I took out of it. Mm-hmm. However, I see your point, mm-hmm. and I'm going to think about that. Yeah, and I appreciate yeah. your counter argument, and that's not unreasonable at all. That is, I think, is a reasonable assessment. Mm-hmm. But the question is, is it the only reasonable assessment? And maybe it is. Mm-hmm. I need to rethink it. Um, uh, yeah, the, I, I I agree with you actually about how the pervasiveness of uh, of misogyny and like referring to women as ships was mm-hmm. just sort of visualized in that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, make me think well, about there's a, there's that old maritime tradition mm-hmm. you name mm-hmm. a vessel after a woman. Exactly. And, uh, and that's and a that's a male thing. Did they have to be nude like I said earlier? No, no nude no. scene is ever ne- ever necessary, but why not film a nude person? People get nude. I get nude all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I I am nude in the shower. Mhm. Except for my shower shoes. No, I don't yeah. wear shower shoes. I'm nude in the shower. Uh, but when, when someone is naked, they are vulnerable. Yeah. Um, they are, you know, close to nature. They're natural selves. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I don't think that particular film is very salacious, though. No. Compare something like Blood Machines to something like Toby Hooper's Life Force, yeah. which is incredibly salacious. An actress named Matilda May, who was very young at the time, I think she was only 18 or 19, uh, plays a space vampire. She mm-hmm. wears no clothes throughout the first third of the movie, and she just wanders around a ship, like, sucking the life force out of people. Uh, and... You know, this this is one of those things that uh, kids my age would like sneak on cable because we didn't get to see nudity in films a lot. And there's yeah. a lot of nudity in this one. And that film is staring right at her. Toby Hooper is objectifying that woman's body. Yes. Uh, and, and Matilda May is very game and how she just sort of strolls through the set totally nude. Uh, Blood Machines doesn't have moments like that. They're not ogling the women. They're nude. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe... And the one time it looks like they <clears throat> might be <clears throat> in service of a male perspective gets completely inverted and turns exactly. out to be yeah. uh, an absolute opposite of that. And uh, I, I think we as audiences might be so unused to seeing nude bodies in cinema mm. that we assume when they show up that there's some sort of exploitation or sexualization at play. However, that does ju- just because we're mm. concerned about that a- aspect mm. doesn't mean that exploitation is no, possible. No, 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 goodness no. Um so again, I'm going to I I take that criticism very very seriously. I'm going to seriously think about that because you raise an mm. interesting point mm. and I am grateful to you for that. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, okay, so that is We've Got Mail for this week. Thank you, everybody, for writing in a wide variety of topics this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, again, I'm really, really grateful to all of you. Thank you, everybody, for uh, sharing your thoughts, your criticisms, uh, your own journeys as you explore the world of cinema, um, and uh, just little bits of your lives. Um, again, we're still, a lot of us are still really isolated right now um, because of a pandemic. And uh, it's nice to feel like we're all in this together and we're all, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this everyone who enjoys this podcast, um, I hope, uh, can feel like, well, other people are enjoying it mm-hmm. too and other people are, uh, you know, exploring movies as are we all. Yeah. Um, and that makes me feel a little less lonely. And I'm very grateful for that. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And again, if you want to write in for a future episode, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We don't have time to read every single letter that we get, but we do our best. And of course, we always have a rule. If you happen to write in while we're recording the episode, we will read that letter. <laughs> of um, course, we, re- we record at different times all the time. Yeah, I was about to say, you don't know when we record. Yeah, so, and we but... record at different times almost every week. So it's always a crapshoot. <laughs> If we recorded at the same time every week, we would never be done with the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so we mix it up a bit. But anyway, that is a standing rule. Um, and again, you don't talk about movies, you can about anything you want, but eh, we're a movies podcast. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, so again, thank you, everybody. You're totally, totally awesome, and we love you for it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so let us go Patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, that's where we have a lot of our exclusive content, including podcasts about Star Trek. Firefly, every film ever nominated for Best Picture. We just did an episode of Not on Disney Plus, where we talk about stuff that is not on Disney Plus, but probably should be. Uh, we just did a really interesting and fun uh, TV movie musical called Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme, which has <laughs> good golly, is it strange? Maybe the most amazing cast of any mm. TV movie ever. Like seriously, like it's a who's who 
of like who was famous in 1990. Like it's nuts. <laughs> um, and I had a really, really fun time mm. revisiting that one. Um, and we got other stuff, cool stuff there besides. Uh, so by all means, check it out. Patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. If you can afford to contribute, we sure would appreciate it. If not subscribe, follow us on Twitter at critic acclaim. Uh, Whitney is at Whitney Seibold. I'm at William. I'm at William Bibiani, but again, I'm taking a bit of a break from Twitter right now. Um, and, um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> you're cool. And, uh, I hope you know you're cool. So thank you everybody once again. And, uh, sincerely yours. Bibs and winning.